Aguero Otamendi. Is that it? Did have Caballero. Yeah. Did have Zabaleta. Yeah, but neither Caballero nor Zabaleta needed a huge amount of hair cutting, did they? They still might have somebody to do the clipping. Um, but, and you'll note Otamendi's hair is, is very particular. Well, as is Sergio's. And I would imagine Aguero will, ha will have his hair cut, I would have thought, every week. A lot of players have their hair cut every week. Yeah. I mean, you laughed, at, you laughed at me for doing it every four weeks. I think that's too often. Well, it's the length issue, isn't it? No. Because otherwise it gets too long. It smacks of fussiness, Ferris. No, well, no, 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 it's not. It, if, if your hair mm. can only go a certain length yeah. before it is then not your hairstyle, mm. you need to then cut it. I don't want to be offensive. Your hairstyle is not especially complicated. Well, it is when it gets it, long. It's more complicated than Steve's. But well, uh, because there's a greater volume of it. Because yeah, there's more also, coverage. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say as well, with Steve, there is no discernible style. I would say a third of Steve's choice has been made for him by nature, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm actually going to break the habit of a lifetime and get a haircut twice within the space of four weeks. Why? Well, because... Because there's a reason. There's a good reason. There is an un understandably good, necessary reason. Have they left you with a Rodrigo Palacio-style rat's tail? No, because I've, <laughs> I've, I've learned some lessons in recent times. And in certain ways, like, you know, you've got to eat when you get the opportunity. Yep. Sometimes you've got to get your hair cut when the opportunity presents itself. You can't just think, do you know what? Under ideal circumstances, I'll do this in a week or 10 days' time. Because, you know, life is busy. It is. It moves, yeah. at, it moves at a pace that's sometimes uncontrollable. And fitting in, sitting around a hairdresser is something just, you know, can't squeeze it into the busy schedule. This is a brilliant kind of mid-30s, middle-class version of the speech from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And, and I would say that as a compliment if I was still in my mid-30s. I think if you was being in your mid-30s. <laughs> We're all homogeneously in Are our you not in your mid-30s? Forever. Are you in your late 30s? But we, we had a whole big celebration, Rory, that you know, the oh, yeah. around my milestone that you birthday. attended. Oh, yeah. I've forgotten that. So, Happy birthday. Thanks, mate. <laughs> The, no, it just shows that you, your youthful sort of vim and vigour remains unmolested. <laughs> Unlike the back of his Was hands. that a 40th birthday party? It was a 40th birthday party. The next one is Chinch's 50th next February. You, you know that the, 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 the balloons around the place, there was a lot of food and cake, an, aw an awful lot of drunk people in their mid-30s to mid-40s. I thought you were being really generous for your 38th. <laughs> I, I would generally. He is quite self-obsessed. So I wouldn't be surprised. That is, yeah, yeah. possible. Yeah. That is unfair, <laughs> as you well know. I would generally not make a fuss about my own celebrations, and I, I made a one-off compromise. It was Katie's on as that. well. Yeah, Katie's yeah, we well, I, I don't age famously at the same speed as everybody else, because I'm not allowed a birthday every other year. Yeah, so you're now currently thirteen and a half. Thirteen and a half. But yeah. the uh, the problem is, is that because you have such a lack of attention to detail, you not only did not notice that. It was a 40th, indeed joint 40th celebration with more than 100 that does people ring a bell. attending. Yeah. But also you have so noticed popular. that your hair has got way too long and you need to cut it. No, my hair, my hair does need cutting. And like Steve quite rightly says, the problem I have is that I do not have a window in which to do it. So I like to go to Squire's Barbershop in Didsbury, uh, where John does an excellent job. Or Liam, whichever one, I'm not fussy. Is it John and Liam Squires? No, I'm not quite sure what the arrangement of the surname is. But John is the guy who owns it. And Liam is his, I don't know, other esteemed barber. Esteemed colleague. Yeah, esteemed colleague. But they're fantastic. They're really good. Jason Manford gets his hair cut there. Really? Uh, he's famous. Does so he have a? Does he still have a full, decent, full head of hair? He's doing all right, Jason Manford. Yeah, the yo-yo um, weight issues. The um, the <laughs> nothing to do with his hair though. But or indeed, his barber. I was going to get my hair cut this week, but I don't have chance because Kate's away, and obviously I can't take a baby and a dog with me into a barber's. That would be ridiculous. Uh, Can you not get yours done at Urban Poor whilst Hector does as is? Yeah, but Hector's <laughs> cost a fortune. I'm not not paying for that. He definitely doesn't need a haircut until like February, uh, f maybe for Chinch's fiftieth. I, I do now frighten the kids, by the way. 
on the way past Urban Poor, yeah. now that they know that's where Hector gets trimmed, I do threaten them that if they don't behave themselves, that's where they'll be going for their next haircut. But your kids have got fantastic hair. Yeah, which they obviously don't get from me. No, it's very much from Katie. That is, yes, that is entirely true. The genetics true. are clear. Yes, but I don't have time to have my hair cut, so I do look slightly ridiculous. I'm going to get it cut in mid-December before I go to Sports Personality of the Year. All right, Ooh, okay. Well, there we go. That's yeah, yeah. Not only a name drop, but also um, a, the first name drop that's ever been associated with the timing of your hair. But I think, I think, as me and Steve have discussed previously, I've been invited to Sports Personality of the Year, even though Steve hasn't. Well, Hugh and I, between us, have probably got about three decades worth of BBC service under our belts, yet neither of us have ever been invited. No, to I was invited last year. But invited. you forget. Did you go? No, I couldn't go. So how come you got an invite last year and I didn't? I think it's just random. I think they just go through the BBC email addresses and like every so often somebody goes, stop, and they just send an invite. Yeah, so they never get as far as W-Y, that's what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. the, that, that's your fault for having a surname at the end of the alphabet. The, he chose it, obviously. Exactly. The, the problem is that you've got three decades worth of, of BBC service, whereas I'm on the radio like once every two months. And which one of us has contributed more to the BBC? This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We have just enjoyed, we have decided to eat before podding uh, today, just for you know, time management, and also because Rory clearly needs to plan very far ahead, uh, certainly where his haircuts are concerned. Yes. Uh, we've enjoyed a roasted vegetable and smoked paprika soup with sourdough bread. It was delicious. Which it I was think good. everyone enjoyed. Yeah. So thanks thanks for the rave reviews. Uh, with me, Hugh Ferris, are Steve Wyeth, BT Sport, BBC's Match of the Day with a broad home counties accent, and Rory Smith, New York Times and other notable publications with a nicely softened Yorkshire accent. If Yorkshire had a home counties within it, that's Rory country. It does. It's called Harrogate. <laughs> it's, that, was, that was my point. I thought it would be a bit parochial if I actually just said Harrogate. People know about Harrogate. Did, did, globally? Yes. Oh, and look at that. It's International Week. So Andy Hinchcliffe is, of course, in Portugal. If there was a home counties part of Portugal, yes, Chinch yes. would have his apartment slap bang in the middle of it. Uh, we will be calling him later for a soccer story, or as they say in the part of Portugal where Andy has his apartment, a soccer story. Um, some notices. Uh, we are now on Spotify. Uh, which, if you are listening via Spotify, you will already know. Uh, however, if you'd like to listen on Spotify, you now can. Also, voting is closed for the Football Sports Federation Podcast of the Year Award. So thank you to everybody who voted. We will now replace our enthusiasm for the democratic process with a sense of pessimism about how big money donors really control the final results. But until the inevitable happens at the beginning of December, thank you for all your incredible support. I know my mum voted. And at the very least, that is one. Yes. Look, every so often, coming from a big Catholic family does pay dividends. There is an awful lot of votes have come in from people that share my surname. That is Say the no best recommendation for a lack of contraception really I is, possibly yeah. ever think of. Uh, those folks at the SFF, by the way, SFFSF, I've been struggling with that for about a month, have been knocked off their safe standing seats by the fine followers of SPM, Catholic or otherwise. We, we are a broad church and we welcome all denominations. Uh, by the way, the two tickets for the awards ceremony have been distributed. The chosen ones are Steve and myself. Yes. Uh, so if anyone in the room um, at the do is a fan of the podcast, uh, they'll probably be incredibly disappointed that we're actually the ones representing the podcast. No. Obviously, they'd like to meet Andy Hinchcliffe. Yeah. yeah this is not going to enhance our chances <laughs> of winning, is it? That you and I turn up. <laughs> we're going to turn up half cocked after having a boozy train journey down and fall asleep at nine thirty. Don't be those people on the train. 
Oh, I what? hate those people. You mean football fans? <laughs> Drinky people on trains. Can't stand yeah, we're, we're going to upgrade to first class. Oh, are crack we? open a few Desperados. Yeah, I think let's make oh, you know, a couple, <laughs> couple of tubes of Pringles. Can't make an occasion that, of it. Is that coming out of the show's budget, is it? <laughs> Not entirely true. <laughs> then we'd be minus, literally, our budget for the year will be minus a first class ticket yeah. or two. Uh, you can get in touch via the pod at setpiecemenu on Twitter. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, you can also continue the conversation as ever on Facebook. Just search for us at setpiecemenu. Um, the what if sliding doors moments continue to come in, uh, for which we are grateful. We do love them, uh, so thank you. Ian Hudspeth is a Spurs fan. Hi, guys. Uh, the Spurs moment I always wonder about is the lasagna food poisoning. Mm-hmm. Win the next day and Spurs are in the Champions League and, importantly, Arsenal are not for what was their first year in the new stadium. It's cheating to say that they would have found just another way to not win that day. I think that's for you, Rory. Um, also, I've never watched Sliding Doors, but I just assumed it was like a terrible run, Lola, run. Um, so if anybody hasn't seen Sliding Doors and has seen Run, Lola, Run, if you could help out Ian Hudspeth um, to uh, let us know whether that's uh, fair or not. Well, so three points. Yes. Never seen Run, run Lola, Run. Never seen Run, Lola, Run. No, nope, I, I don't know what that is. Don't know what it is. Two. Um, it stars the girl who was in Fifth Element. What's oh, oh Mila uh, Ivanovic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not Mila. Is it Mila? Am I thinking of... Mil- Mili Jovanovic. Jovanovic was the Liverpool winner. <laughs> no, you're talking about the Crystal Palace midfielder. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's Milivojevic. Milivojevic or Milivojevic, depending on how easy you want it to be. Yes, and how much um, you're, you're going yes, in for the Barry Davis. It's Oli done a Solskjaer. Solskjaer or Figu. Jovovic. Milivojevic. Stevan Jovovic. Who you had a Fiorentina... Top with a number eight on. Not had, still have. Oh, Saw still him have. in the stands at Monaco actually the day, not the other day, a few weeks ago, uh, and was really tempted to get a selfie, which is very rare that I want a selfie. But with Stefan Jovetic, I'd make an exception. Um, that I had was, other points. That was the second point. Second point is. No, you know, that was the first point. The, the second first point, point was never seen Run on a Run. Second point is Sliding Doors is, a, is not a terrible film. It's a brilliant film. It's a really good film, and it is constantly on television. So you can't. Well, not in that case, Ian, have seen it. what are you playing at? And well, three. Gwyneth, Gwyneth's in it, which is a kind of a seal of approval. And Aqua provided the soundtrack or the, the title song. So but yeah, also, that's, that that really is a you know adds a bit of cachet as it, well. Do you even consider yourself in the mainstream? Because those two things surely suggest that you're not if you haven't seen it. Is the guy in it James Nesbitt or John Hannah? John Hannah. John, John Hannah. Hannah. Yeah. Do you get confused between those two as well? Uh, post um, four weddings bump in his career. Yes, I like John Hannah. Less keen on James Nesbitt. Uh, don't know why. The is it the hair thing? Uh, no, it's not. not trust him now he's got the new hair? I think he must have played a, a role in which I took against him and I now associate him with that role. I can't remember which role it would be. But I like him in Cold Feet. Which uh, is, of course... Filmed in Didsbury. There we go. Uh, and point three, yes, that is a really good sliding doors moment because that would that would probably have substantially changed the traje- trajectories of both clubs, certainly in the short-term future. So, Ian, apart from the fact that you, for some reason, haven't watched Sliding Doors, your Sliding Doors moment... Is an excellent one. Accepted. It was a game against West Ham. Yes. That's right, wasn't it? But also Spurs uh, lost and Arsenal won and they, they flipped round in there. In but the also, I, I have a vague recollection of l- the lasagna thing not being quite right. They didn't have... The, it, it's not to do with lasagna. The lasagna wasn't, wasn't flawed. Is it a anyway. slightly apocryphal story? I think there's an element of, of misrepresentation of it. I also don't want the... Just as a forewarning, I, we absolutely cannot have the sliding doors moments become our equivalent of Dan Walker's bloody Ed Club, <laughs> where we get to choose and banteringly refuse entry. <laughs> refuse entry to yeah. sliding to doors club. club. Yeah, okay. no, that's not happening. It's um, not a sliding doors club. That is said with a huge amount of affection for Dan Walker. It's all right. You can say whatever you like about Dan. We know him well enough. The man who Hugh could have been. <laughs> yes, if only I was taller, had bigger hands, and got the job a year earlier. Um, 
<laughs> Episode 102 was about Manchester City dominating the Premier League and whether it might be ruining it for everyone. An incendiary suggestion, and some City fans have got in touch. Would you believe? Oh, wow. Paul Schofield writes, As a City fan of almost 50 years, I found your discussion fascinating. Ooh. It's a good start. Okay. I'm less convinced by your central argument uh, that the fundamentals at City are so strong that we, he says we for City, it's him speaking, not me, will have a one-team league indefinitely. Here's why. And like you, Rory, I think there's three points. Although City have built a revenue base comparable to other top teams, it's not hugely bigger than their rivals, and it is smaller than Manchester United and the Spanish Giants. The signs are now that the owners want the club to live within those means. City missed out on Jorginho, Fred and Van Dijk, partly because they weren't willing to do a Rubinho in uh, do a Rubinho anymore. Being well run isn't some weird voodoo other clubs cannot follow suit. The fact that the owners choose to leave the money in the club when other owners take profits is, again, not some immutable law. Just asterisk to that, we have to recognise the De Spiegel allegations, which raise the question as to exactly how well run City are from a revenue point of view anyway, because although they are now profitable, if those allegations are true and City have not denied them, then you have to wonder how many of those sponsorship contracts are actually just sort of what's the word, disguises, sort of veils for Shape Mansour to put more money in. So, Which, of course, would not be revenue or profit. Well, it's not revenue or profit. And it's, it's a, to an extent, if the, if the owners do genuinely want them to live within their means, including like not putting in money through Arbar or Etisalat or whatever, then they may be, there may be challenges ahead to that sort of point. Uh, we will bring up FFP and Manchester City um, uh, in relation to our conversation today a little bit later on. Another reason, uh, says Paul, is Pep. He is clearly a genius and the club is built around him. He has made it abundantly clear he won't stay for uh, 2020 to 2021 and no amount of clever succession planning will get us a comparable manager. Not sure that's true about the not staying. Uh, this is not a squad of untouchable Galacticos. Build a squad of the best 16 players in the world. How many City players are actually in it? Two or three, suggests Paul, who is a City fan. City have yet to prove that they can, can consistently win at home and in Europe. Finally, some this is his third point. Finally, some historic perspective. City have yet to even defend the title, have an honours board significantly less impressive even than Aston Villa. A period of dominance would be fabulous, but the end of anybody else's fun? Not for me, Clive, says Paul. Nobody here is called Clive. Yeah, just one point to pick up on there about them not necessarily having the best players. Yeah, I think we can go along with that, but it isn't about having the best players. It's about having the right players for what Pep and City require, and they have invested heavily in making sure that they get the right players rather than pound for pound the best. Yeah, I think that's a sl- yeah, I think Steve's, well, Steve's totally right, obviously, but it's also slightly negative to say if you were constructing like a dream squad of of everyone, that it would only be two or three City players. De Bruyne obviously would have a chance of being in there. I think David Silva, uh, Edison. It's funny because over the last Kyle few weeks, Walker. since since Manchester City played Liverpool and then Manchester United, there's lots of be- lots of um, conversations have happened around who would be in a team that combined those two mm. squads, and actually. City have been 9, 10 or 11. Mm. City fans saying about United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 9, 10 or 11 of, of City players. So yeah, it's, it's who, who they play for, how they play and how they are made the most of by yeah. the environment in which they work. And Uday has emailed, Hello, fine gentlemen of SPM. I'm a regular pod listener. And SPM is a weekly ritual on my Wednesday AM and PM commute. So it's less than an hour, more than half an hour. It is one of the best podcasts I have heard, he says. Quite rightly. The topics are great and the analysis cutting edge, he says. And by the sound uh, and by the sound of it, the food is yummy. 
Sometimes. And we could agree with at least that last one. The episode on Manchester City and the widening gulf in the Premier League was very timely, but I think this is extremely relevant, not just to the EPL, but also European football as a whole. It has always been a widely shared notion that the next few years at Real Madrid and Barcelona will experience a decline, Real already, he says in brackets, with a departure or retirement or waning of powers of Messi's Ronaldo and Messi, and their place will be taken up by English clubs who are on the rise. City may also win a Champions League soon, to uh, compound that point. However, the tilting of balance of power to English clubs may not happen if City has its way in the EPL and builds a dynasty. Klopp said recently the only way his season could be a success is if Liverpool are champions and City's demolition job on Manchester United is evidence that that may not happen anytime soon. He's writing this after the Manchester derby. City have picked up 10 to 12 points against title rivals. Liverpool have won once. This means that the pod's theory that the remaining big teams in the EPL are all waiting in the wings for two to three to four years till Pep moves on from City to Pounce is prophetic, to say the least, says Uday. This, though, depends on players staying for those amounts of years, and we all know about player power in today's game. So if top players like Salah, Azar, or Pogba don't see any meaningful titles come their way, they may well move on to European behemoths rather than stay in the Premier League, which will then give those European clubs power mm. rather than those who have waited in the wings in the Premier League. I started to paraphrase at the end. It's a long paragraph. The, yeah, and that's all yeah. That's all. And we talked a little bit about yeah. that, didn't yeah. we? That, you yeah. know, it it's could an be interesting that, projection you know, if you play it out. You, likes of Jurgen Klopp, Maurizio Sarri said, said it last week. You know, they might, if, if they don't see any opportunities for them to, to win silverware in England, whether that's the Premier League trophy or not, they might, they might think about going elsewhere. Mm. The intelligence of your contributions continues to amaze us. Yeah. So thank you to everybody. Hang on, did we not have lots of City fans telling us we were idiots and wrong? Um, for... Funnily enough, there weren't, no. Really? But they might not listen. That's true. <laughs> I had an interesting spread of... I wrote a, a fair bit about City a couple of weeks ago when, when the when the Dish Beadle stuff came out and when there was that debate, I think largely started by Set Piece Menu, about... I think so, globally. Globally, whether... That's the sort of reach we have here. We've yeah, got, no, to, got tremendous power about whether City potentially could be bad for the Premier League. And I had several people, several people criticising me for writing about the Dispeedle allegations. Several people criticised me for not writing about the Dispeedle allegations 48 hours after I had, after I had <laughs> written about that. the Dispeedle allegations. Uh, and lots of people saying that you wouldn't say... that. You know, that there was this kind of desire to find anything to criticise City with. And it's in terms of the domination. It's not a criticism of City. It's It's just looking at kind of what the situation is from a perspective that is not purely... City and it's it never ceases to amaze me the kind of the, the feedback you get about how biased you are from someone who's told something like Leroy Sane SZN on Twitter. <laughs> I know. I, we'll, I, we'll come on. We'll come on to talking more about City's reaction to, or City fans' reaction to the FFP story. I nearly, I, I nearly found myself on the back of some of that jumping to Rory's defence on Twitter, and I realised he doesn't need me to do that. He's a big boy. A he big can boy. come out it's swinging. Always, it's always helpful. He's eloquent. <laughs> it's always nice to have support. He can shout people down. No. I was balancing coward childcare issues we, at the time. We will never be able to be as eloquent as you when you completely troll somebody who's attempted to troll you. That's not no, did you never win a, you never win an argument on Twitter because at some point they just go, No, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> That's true, but you at least are capable and you know, there are plenty of opportunities that people will be able to see on Twitter if they just go through their timelines of at least enjoying the attempt to have an argument. Whereas I will never have an argument. I like to I'm believe. I like to believe that people like people will eventually succumb to reason. But I am nope. forever reminded that that's not the Again, case. Again, something uh, about which we will discuss on this very podcast uh, today. Um, uh, so do get in touch. At Set Piece Menu is where we are on Twitter. Set Piece Menu at gmail.com or facebook.com forward slash Set Piece Menu. Now, over the next couple of weeks, while Andy is pumping iron with Zhao. 
Joao. Wow, Joao. Uh, we're going to have um, a cathartic conversation uh, about a couple of intertwined subjects that get our collective goats. Uh, we will unload, feel better about it, and keeping strictly to type will then not offer any solutions whatsoever. Um, so what are these two talking points that intertwine in such a perfect slash convoluted way? Tribalism versus truth. And how even the rules of the game are subject to this particularly gritty battle. Next week, we'll get on to the rules part, and that's where Rory will mark out his long run-up. I'm, really, I'm ready for this. Are you ready? <laughs> wet, you have wet your whistle. Um, but we'll start with something we've touched on before. Um, that relatively recent events have brought to the front of minds Ferris and more particularly Wyeth. This is tribalism versus truth. Steve actually got up at four o'clock this morning. Um, so let's throw him in the deep end. Off your pop, Steve. Just to prepare, really. <laughs> well, Rory's already touched upon it. I mean, I think the Manchester City thing with financial fair play has really encapsulated this, this issue, which seems to be gathering an, an unstoppable momentum in which there is no common middle ground whatsoever. As, as, Hugh has, as, as Rory has alluded to, you've got this situation where you can write a piece about City's financial fair play and, and many others uh, as well as Rory have done so or you can discuss it and you are criticised for not within the context of that mentioning what fantastic football City play how superior they were to everyone else last season and how many goals Sergio Aguero has scored 48 hours later you can be having a discussion or you can write a piece or you can be on the radio talking about the, the fact that you know an awful lot of what City are doing on the pitch is just so phenomenal. They've completely bossed Manchester United in the derby. The scoreline could have been even more emphatic than it was. And within the context of a, a match assessment or a match report, people are getting criticised because they've not mentioned financial fair play. Where's, where's the context? Where's the nuance? Sometimes when you're talking about football, you're not talking about the finances of football. And, and sometimes when you're discussing sports news issues, that's what's important, not what's happening on the pitch or in, in whatever sport, you know, whatever field of expertise the sport is carried out on. And there is no breaking through that with people. They are so enraged and so strident in their point of view that you can't have a sensible discussion about it. And it, it's just infuriating. Let's save the discussion for, you know, let's save the financial fair play discussion for when we're talking about that side of things. And let's enjoy on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Monday evening, whenever it is, let's enjoy the football. It's really tricky. And City's not the first example. And I mean, the Luis Suarez and John Terry cases, the, the two racism cases, were really good examples of it as well. That it's hard as a, as a writer, I think, or as a commentator or as a, a pundit. We have a pundit in absentia, with, not with us today, but we're all thinking about him. Like how, uh, to what extent do you have to refer to everything when talking about one thing? So if you're if during that that Suarez season for Liverpool when he was the best striker in the world, did you have to? Was the right thing to do? And I struggle with this a lot. Was the right thing to do every time you wrote about Suarez to mention? his rap sheet and if you mention in, in a, the rap in sheet in a sub-clause Suarez who recently was banned for eight games for actually abusing Patrice Evra comma well, every time for me, me and Ian Doyle who you will not have heard of uh, and with good reason who is the I think he's now the, one of the, one of the he's one of the Echoes Liverpool reporters when I worked on Merseyside we had this running joke about the um, 
the weird parentheses descriptions of, of people. And so you get Leighton Baines, comma, 27 in a match. What, who cares yeah. that he's 20? It doesn't matter. In this context, it does not matter that he's 27. If he's 37, it becomes important. Or if he's 17, yeah. it's relevant. Yeah. Or, well, or even just the, the way, the style that you mention it. So you'd say the 17-year-old. You wouldn't say Leighton, you know, Leighton Baines, comma, 17. It, it, it's, it's a weird thing to write. It's not in any way kind of naturalistic. So we had this running joke about the stupid ones you'd get. I, during the Manchester Derby, I spent a lot of time describing Raheem Sterling as a dog owner, because Raheem Sterling had been in the newspapers for buying a dog, which is not news, to be perfectly honest. It is not news that, that a man buys a dog. A man bites a dog, famously news. <laughs> yes. Man buys dog, not news. You, you have given us that uh, little lecture on the, <laughs> the beginnings of journalism before. <laughs> but the, um, so we, we had this running joke, and Doyle always said that one thing he wanted to do was start putting things that people were not. So it would be kind of David Moyes, comma, not a librarian, so just just to sort of highlight the the ridiculousness of it. And I remember thinking during the Suarez and Terry things, like, should you be describing as Luis Suarez, comma, the racist, comma? Because that's yeah. it got to the stage where if you mentioned him and didn't bring that up, people would accuse you of being of of kind of whitewashing it or in some way ignoring it yeah. with an agenda, rather than because you would writing about the fact he scored a hat trick. And I think it's. It is an interesting ethical question that I don't have an answer to about to what extent we should allow people's pre- previous transgressions or their transgressions, whether whether a transgression like that is ever previous or not, to to sort of haunt them. And it was interesting with Suarez that it was always that you should you should be talking about the fact that he racially abused Everett. It was never you should never you should be talking about the fact that he bit two people at that stage, or later three people, because <laughs> he liked biting people for a while. And and that's another good example of how there has to be depending on which side of the argument you come down, is wholly one person's yeah. blame or completely the other person's responsibility. There's no opportunity for some to look, nobody's really come out of this smelling terribly good. And isn't there responsibility, shared responsibility somewhere along the line? Should we really not be antagonising each other? Should we really not be lashing out? But it takes two to tango, that kind of thing. But no, there's always, it's either hit all of his fault or hit, you know. A zero-sum game. Yeah, and... And and that, that that's where the tribalism comes into it. You're the, the, the whoever you who, whichever team you support or whoever your favourite player happens to be, they can do no wrong. Yeah. And so therefore the the blame always lies well, so elsewhere. It, it would that's be crazy. The, my 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 father would not allow me to continue without uh, saying it's uh, the Ovidian epithet, which of course you will know and understand, won't you, Rory, having studied classics. I must have told you my Ovid story. <laughs> okay, then we'll get to the Ovid story later. It's even better than Sava Milosevic story. Um, the, the Ovidian epithet is, is the poet Ovid. Yeah, I know would, who Ovid is. No, no, this is for the listener's purpose. And, and for my benefit. Which shall well. I look at Steve when I tell yeah, him? Yeah, look at Steve. Yeah, yeah, don't, because he'll get angry. I'll get angry. <laughs> he, um, he, he was a poet who wrote short poems, and, and every time he uh, described or, or named a person, uh, a protagonist of the poem, they would have a little epithet. And everybody has an epithet. Rory, hipster journalist. Steve... Match of the day commentator. <laughs> no, Steve's is just grumpy. <laughs> Steve's, yeah. Steve, come on, grumpy. Yes. Grumpy middle aged man. This is the modern football journalism way of a Vidian epithet. So Your dad's so much cleverer than me, that's really annoying. Yeah, it, it is. They are players of Vidian epithets. And, and it's about whether yeah. you should, because he used them as satire. Um, he yeah. used them to basically troll people. Uh, second use of the word troll in the podcast so far. But the, that, that, was his, that was him having a little dig. And so the question is, in this context, is whether you think that in including it or being told to include it is because those people are telling you to include it, want you to have a dig because they want to have a dig. Well, so the, the thing, that, and, and as I say, this isn't something I, ha- I have a, a view on that's firm either way. And it's, it's a really interesting question. So when, when you were writing 
match reports about Luis Suarez or when you were commentating about Luis Suarez, was it incumbent upon you at that stage, or even st- still, still now, to mention the things he has done wrong? Is that something that would apply to any of us, or that we would like to, like to have applied to any of us in our normal lives? If you know whatever tran- whatever things we did wrong previously, should they be allowed to continue to to sort of follow us around forever? That Rory I, again, Smith, former smoker. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> Rory Smith, come at once arrested. The, um, is that the same story as your Ovid story? <laughs> no, that's a different story, and one that I will not be telling. The, um, the, yeah. Would you, it, have you have you got one of those? Have you got a police mugshot? No, I was arrested in a country where they where uh, money can get you out of such problems. Uh, the, um, How much were you worth out of interest? I was a student, very little. Okay, cool. Um, it's an interesting. As I say, it's not something I have a firm view on, but. I don't think any of us would want the things we've done wrong to continually be attached to our names any time they come up. Or, you know, as, as, in if, perpetuity. In perpetuity. So should that, should that apply to Suarez or John Terry? I mean, with John Terry, would you have to... I mean, in fact, with both of them, you'd have to run through a lot of things before you got to the end of the parenthesis and said, cleared the corner. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> there are contexts to these things. So if you're John writing Terry, about... John Terry, corner clearer. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Corner. Who had previously dot, dot, dot. <laughs> List begins. The... Um, so it's, it was really hard journalistically to know at what point you were okay to think, actually, do you know what? This isn't actually about what Suarez did with Evera or what John Terry did with Anton Ferdinand. This is about they are existing in this context where that is not actually relevant to what they have done today or yesterday. And it's the same with City. So with City, do you have to, when you write about what a great performance they've had against whatever opponent, do you have to say at some point, whether you're commentating or writing, this is. It is possible that none of this would have happened without what looks like fairly well-established, extensive. Uh, what's the word? Bending of the rules, at least. And the other, th- the other problem for all, with all of it is so much of it is loaded. So I had a lot of criticism about City. I think on on the Friday, I think I did a piece on on De Spiegel, and then on the Sunday, I wrote a Derby, Derby match report, yeah. if or Derby colour piece, and you get the criticism on the De Spiegel piece and. People say, oh, you know, you're only writing about this, but you should be writing about the, the quality of the football. It's, yeah. Or they find sort of reasons to say, oh, the others are doing something similar, or it, you didn't say this while it was United, or it's just a media generated city. And then you write the match report, and it's, you've not mentioned the human rights, rights abuses in Abu Dhabi. And this isn't, this is going to sound really sort of glib, and it's not meant to. But in the course of 1,200 words, where you're trying to build an argument about Manchester City, the football team, and in this case, their effect on the Premier League, at what point do you bring up human rights abuses in Abu Dhabi, which are really important and should be covered and are a subject worthy of discussion, obviously. At what point do you, do you, go, in, do you go into them? Or you know, to what extent do you go into them? But every, every piece you write would be the same because you'd always be mentioning... Here is the context yeah, of Manchester yeah. City. And th- th- to be honest, morally, you can probably make a case for that. You can probably make a case that you should have to talk about all those things at all times because otherwise you're not given the true context in which it's happening. But it's the, going to be really. It's going to be really difficult to commentate on City as well as yeah. it's like Raheem Sterling. It's a lovely finish, but there's serious questions about whether the recent contract that he signed is complying yeah. with financial fair play. But Manchester City lead whoever but, by one goal to nil. I mean, there's there's an awful lot of information you're going to have to get into a small space of time. Uh, and the other thing to bring this back to the subject at hand is that a lot of this stuff, whether it's Suarez, whether it's Terry, whether it's City, whatever it is, PSG, human rights abuses in Qatar and Abu Dhabi, whatever the broader subject is. Is brought up by fans of other clubs who, like, like you say, who want who, and I'm generalising to an extent, don't actually care about those 
issues yes. who are not doing anything in their ordinary life to make, to make you think. It is a means to an end. This person is really, human rights in the Middle East are really important to this person. It, it is weaponized, and in some cases that's not to say that the, the weapon being used isn't a legitimate weapon, but it's weaponized as a way to detract from the success of the player or the club or whatever involved because they, they want the person to be wrong. So just as there, there will have been a lot of people, and it will, and it also works in the other direction. I think that's what's really interesting. Is and Suarez is a great example. There will be loads and loads and loads of Liverpool fans who are not only not racist but are fervently anti-racist. Loads of them who will have contorted themselves into a position. And there'll be lots of Chelsea fans who did the same for for John Terry. Just as there were, there are lots of Manchester City fans, I am sure, who would be furious if Liverpool or Man United or Chelsea or whoever had been caught in some way cheating or bending the rules, whatever you want to call it and yet who are finding defences for what City have done and saying it's fine. And even within Manchester City, I think there's an interesting tension between the club that comes out of one set of the Dispedal documents, which is the insurgent team trying to smash the traditional elite, and the club that comes out of the other set of Dispedal documents, which is the traditional elite trying to keep down the insurgents, which is what Manchester City are. And there is this... Jack Pitbrook in The Independent did a great piece on City's sort of twin identity as a team that is captured in t- Tim Rich's book Caught Beneath a Landslide about City in the 90s and is a team that can now, who's <laughs> chief executive or chairman, whatever Caldoun is, ch- chairman, um, that can send out an email saying, we must avoid at all costs the appearance of a cartel. <laughs> I mean, that is the least <laughs> Manchester City sentiment in history. Manchester City, since 1894, a- avoiding at all costs the appearance of a cartel. It's on the badge. It's on the badge. <laughs> it's what superbia et proilio <laughs> means. I've always wondered. The, the, um, so yeah. difficult to get accurate Latin translations. <laughs> and it's the way, what struck me, and it's the, the Dispedal thing is just a latest example, just the, and, and it's true of all fans of all clubs, the way that fans will find a way to defend whatever their team does, I actually think is quite troubling and unhelpful for football as a whole. So this is why we're asking this question, tribalism versus truth. At what point does the truth get so diluted by your tribalism, even though you are, by being tribal, attempting to fight for the truth. Because it's your truth. It's not the truth. But this, well, and to, yeah. to get into our old post-truth conversation, which was episode six, by the way, if you'd like to go back. Probably, well, still, we, probably still the high point. <laughs> been a, a permanent downward and, spiral since then. And that and we're only more half relevant. an hour, by the way. <laughs> we're only half an hour. Even more relevant now than it was then. Yeah. Well, it is. And if you look at the rest of the world, it's yeah. caught up, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, what, with our set-piece menu, we are set-piece set No, and all, but also yeah. with this... The, with, and, I, and we talked about it then, and I've written about it, but this... This th- this sort of football world where there is no truth, there is only kind of whataboutery and mm. a refraction of the truth is is the problem that is played in politics where you can say anything and to your supporters it will be true and they will find a way for that truth to be the case. And it's because in, in a lot of cases there are multiple truths and you can, you can emphasise one part of the truth whilst ignoring the other. And th- what, if it isn't <laughs> true and you're prepared to accept that it is not true, what you say if somebody accuses you of it not being true, you say that you have an agenda because yeah. you're accusing me of that, or alternatively you say, well, what about, as you said, what about what about that person, yeah. because that person's doing something worse, or to, to, to our own minds, as Whereas I, Sean Grotas the Greatest at Twitter.com, <laughs> does not have an agenda no, at all. No agenda whatsoever. The, the, well, we, we had a... a Although we, you know, we surprisingly didn't get much in the way of criticism on the back of the the city Yet. related podcast a couple of weeks it's ago, true, mate. we did get one on we did get one on Twitter that clearly hadn't listened to the podcast, and this will be something familiar to you, Rory. Read the headline, don't bother reading the piece. 
because we'd, we'd framed it in, you know, by way of a question, you know, the link to the podcast on Twitter was framed up by the way of, you know, will City dominating the Premier League for the next few, few years ruin it for everybody else? And the response was, why did you not ask this question when Manchester United were dominating? That's easy. Well, firstly, <laughs> we've only been doing this for two years and Manchester United haven't been very good in the last two years. And secondly, that was all people ever talked about yeah. at that time. And we Manchester addressed United... it in the podcast as well. It's, yeah. so, it's just, abs- well, like I say, they hadn't listened. But yes, you, the blinkers go on and there's no thought whatsoever that, yeah, perhaps this has, you know, perhaps this is talked about in Italy with the Juventus. Perhaps it's talked about in Germany with Bayern. And perhaps, yes, it was talked about 10 years, 15 years ago when Manchester United were the dominant force. But we're talking about the here and now. So... You've got to accept that your club is in the crosshairs in terms of, well, is, is this good for football if one team's dominating? Well, also the, the situation changes. I don't remember a season when United at 100 points. That never happened. And I don't remember a season where United had four rivals who are all in some way breaking a record for their yeah. start to the season and were still top. That's the point with City, yeah. that they have they are top of the Premier League, famously. Well, Liverpool and <laughs> Spurs have had their best ever starts to the yeah. season. Arsenal won seven in a row. And Maurizio Sarri's had the best ever debut season of a, or de- starts with season yeah. of a debut manager. So in those those things would ordinarily mean that those teams are top. They are not. Yeah. City are top and are showing no signs of slowing down. I think the crucial thing with all of this that fans have stopped asking themselves if they ever ask themselves, and it may well be that we're not reflecting. This doesn't reflect anything new. This may just. This, it may have always been like this. And, and it just also may be that we're reflecting only a very small amount of our audience because there might be a lot of our audience who are probably thinking along the same lines and wondering about why it's like this anyway. I'd love, to, I'd love to know how many fans regularly, when they see stories like this about their team, and every team has one, and some of them are more serious than others, and which ones are most serious depends on what your personal... So there'll be people who thought Suarez and Terry were incredibly serious, but City, they don't really care about. Um, and there'll probably be fans who thought that think that City's really important and Suarez and Terry it's, it's one incident it's really bad it's distasteful but it's not indicative of a larger problem in the game Yeah I, I've got a, a mate who's a big Chelsea fan I remember talking to him about John Terry at some point we probably had a couple of beers and it's like you know, it's, you know I understand you know where your affection for him comes from but are there not things about his character or whatever that you think well maybe that's not so great hasn't painted him in the best of lights and he just basically kept saying Captain Leader Legend over and over again, <laughs> thumping his chest, you know, and like like Twitter handle as well. Yeah, saying, saying lots of stuff about, you know, I could come home and find John Terry in bed with my missus. I'd just tuck him in bed, make sure he's comfortable, see if he wants a cup of tea. You know, they, they, just people have got the blinkers on, haven't they? they yeah. You know, and it's like that whole Captain Leader Legend thing is kind of indicative but, of but, that. but they do not want to accept anything that will make their team possibly worse yeah. or countenance anything yeah. that might lead to their team and being worse or weaken their, weaken their so position so City not... fans at the moment will be saying well have City broken any rules have they actually broken any rules now come on come on it's an agenda because they haven't actually broken any rules everybody's jealous and they're setting about trying to dismantle City's dominance mm. by bringing up stuff that okay it might look bad, but it doesn't break any rules. So there's an article in the UEFA FFP rules, which it may well have broken. Well, yeah, and the, but so, then the argument is they've already been punished for it. So but, if, if UEFA knew the extent of the, bre- of the breach, this, then it's... But this article is, is talks about the spirit, about clubs um, are signed up to um, adhering to the spirit of the rules as mm. well as actually following them. And so there might be a, a way in for them to renew their... Yeah, possibly. And I, I, I mean, I doubt it. Process. And th- to be honest, the only way in which... I think it's it's even likely that 
So my problem with City is not that they broke the rules, it's the it's the example that sets, which is that the rules don't apply to certain clubs. If you're big enough and powerful enough, the rules don't apply to you. That is an example that's really dangerous for football. It may, may not be dangerous because of City, but it's really dangerous at some point. The, the, this example isn't the most dangerous example no. of what what the wider issue is, no. but the wider issue is incredibly worrying. And there's a double standard because and as teams in Romania or Turkey or Greece will tell you, they have been hounded by UEFA for FFP. And it's, it seems really un, really distasteful that they've been punished while City and PSG have been basically let off. And that we should we should lay the blame at UEFA for that's that. That's UEFA's fault. Yeah, that's, oh, no, that's not City yeah. or PSG's fault. That's UEFA's fault entirely. They've done for the minnows and let the Sharks swim free. But the, the question I, that I keep coming back to with the, with fans, and and we are all guilty of this in some way. I'm guilty of it, certainly, with my team. How would you feel if another team had done this? Yes, ask and yourself that question each time. Is your team behaving in such a way that you can be proud of them as a fan? I don't really go in for this thing where a team has to be like a force. I think a lot of the problem is that we've we've established a world where teams have to be. It's not just that you want the team to win on a, on a weekend or on a Wednesday night. It's that you that you have to seem to have to believe the team is a force for moral good in some way. Mm-hmm. That's not really what a football team's job is. That you know, the great Real Madrid team of the 1950s were not a force for moral good. They were just really good at football. There's no there was no kind of greater example that the, did the, they spend more than they made though I mean that, that's the big question about yes the I think they probably did and they also broke a lot of rules um, in a lot of ways and I mean, some would say that they continue to do that I'm not getting into that the, um, <laughs> but I think that's not something that fans maybe always ask themselves when they when they kind of go in on but on this but it's the same thing subject. about a, a penalty that was definitely a penalty and then if they were to just flip round and watch exactly the same incident at the other end, they'd say it's never a penalty. But we've, we've, we've talked about this before, haven't we? Like how many fans go home having howled at a player for being yeah. injured and then he's gone off on a stretcher and they're booey-eyed, time waster. Yeah. And they go home and they say, oh, actually, his, his neck has fallen off. Yeah. Do they feel bad? And I, I, I really try, I don't always get it right, but I always really try, even when I'm watching the team I support, to not react to decisions by referees or or whatever, when until I've seen a replay and I can be sure that my my anger is is righteous, and I I just find it I find it odd when you get free kicks or throw-ins or whatever given against your team and you get this, these howls of derision. You think, well, look, it is you must have seen it. And I know there's been studies done into this about um, there was an American football game in the 1950s between two colleges. They did a study on who's on on how fans saw one game. And the differences were incredibly stark. You can read about that in the numbers game. It's an excellent book. Very well edited, <laughs> I would say. The, the writing, mm, the editing. Excellent. The editing is top notch. <laughs> it's a shame you got them to leave in the bits that you'd crossed out in red <laughs> ink, though, you know, just to sort of demonstrate what you needed to do. Just to make a big four out of ten, see me at the end. But that's a phenomenon. But I, I do, the extent of it, I find extraordinary. But, but, but do we do, are we attempting to extrapolate this argument to say that those little moments have a slightly more worrying effect when they are applied to more important issues, the likes of which we're trying to talk about now. They are all part of a spectrum. It's, and this was something we touched, touched on in the fake news then. It's a game where you can, simulta- two, two, two people can see one incident and one can believe it's a penalty and one can fervently believe it's not. And those things are, are so, in exchange. You know, uh, uh, there's no point at which those, those two things meet. It is a game where the managers can appear at the end of a game and say they both deserve to win with a, with not only a straight face but total conviction and genuine belief we deserve to win the referee was against us not them Yes, and then, and then when, when you extrapolate that out it becomes a sport where people can claim their own truths so right okay given that where is the truth and what role does that play and can there be a uh, 
a path that we follow that eventually brings that truth back. Because if it's deserving to win, and again, I said, <laughs> I think I said a couple of weeks ago about the fact that I want to do a deserving to win podcast because it infuriates me. Because what does that actually mean? But it seems to have so much power in the weight of argument that, that somebody has against something. We, we've done deserving to win. It was XG, we did it last week. Yeah. No, no, no. That's. But, no, no, no. But, uh, XG, that, that's it. That's it. Okay. That's it. That's deserving. Well, to I win. want to talk about it more. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> that must have been when I said it. But anyway, the, 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 that that aspect has too many intangible points, too many too many subjective things, like the referee was against and things like that. But there is surely a place for truth when it comes to what we what we've been talking about. Whether you whether you're talking about Luis Suarez, John Terry, or whether you're talking about FFP or any anything of the wider issues that we is, is there any place for truth or would you sit back and go well you know they're just going to argue about it we're never going to find out we're never going to know we're never going to really be able to make a decision about it there has to be grey area if if there is an incident in a game or there's a, a situation ongoing in which two people are, are have got massively opposing views do you know what maybe you're both wrong yeah or maybe you've got to meet somewhere in the middle there, just go okay. back to that thing. There let's, is let's, not a right and a wrong answer all of the time. Let's let's workshop Football this. Is, how, how is that going to happen? How are you going to actually make those two people come together? I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure I've got the power. I'm not sure I've got the play. ability to <laughs> persuade. But maybe if people started watching football or analysing football with the thought that there is some nuance and that it isn't black and white then we might all start to just be able to get on a little bit and realise that we don't have to be definitive about every aspect of the game, big or small, on field or off. I, want, I, want, I don't know. I, am, I, is that, am I sort of living in some kind of crazy nirvana? No, not necessarily. It, does, it seems as though it's got worse. And it, again, it may just be that we now have access yeah. to seeing how bad it is. And yeah, social media, unfortunately, is a window into that. Yeah, isn't it? but it might always have been like that. But it does seem like it's getting worse and, and people are getting more tribally kind of... Not more tribal, just football has always been tribal, but more kind of entrenched in their views and less willing to countenance that perhaps their team is, le- is anything less than perfect. Um, well, that, that, in that case, we live in a world of every team being completely perfect. Exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, if it's getting worse, it probably can get better. If, there's, if there is motion on that spectrum, it should be sort of, in, it can be in both directions, is kind of how you'd hope to see it. I don't, I wonder, I've always thought that managers shouldn't be allowed to talk about referees that, that before and after games anything to do with the referee should be totally off limits So that won't stop the fans doing it? No, but it might encourage a kind of acceptance that referees and we're going to come on to this mm. I think the way we appro- approach the rules is wrong that there is we have become it's become a sport run by not run by but with this whole sort of timber around it of jobs worthiness and kind of pedantry that I think is totally unhelpful um as regards referees, in terms of you're right, like in terms of deserving to win, that's too nebulous to 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 do anything about. Because both teams will, in most games, both teams will kind of have reasons to believe. It's a bit much when you hear Mark Hughes get beaten six one and be like, well, you know, if we'd scored that, if they'd not scored their third, fourth, or fifth goals, it would have been <laughs> yeah. a lot, a bit would have been a lot closer. Well, they had scored oh. twice when it was four one. Well, there still would have been yeah, four three. The, there would have been a game in it. <laughs> but the yeah, well, if, yeah. if, if if I feel I, like we're doing the deserving to win pod, so well done everybody. Two for the price of one. If my if my players were different and better, then it would have been a closer <laughs> yes, game. Exactly. The, that's probably too nebulous. But I think in terms of specifics, you can do a little bit that might. That might just take the edge off it, and by taking the edge off it, you might dilute all the, the, the sort of the the dribbling, insane tribalism that has infected a lot of the game. Well, what I would suggest is that uh, 
all those people who either have a presence on social media, whether it's reflective of your actual views or not, uh, whether you feel like you know somebody or you have been somebody who's particularly tribal, you have espoused an opinion which is a little bit contorted because you're trying to support your club or a player for your club. What I think that you should do is to listen to Set Piece Menu and forevermore we will be the arbiter of truth. Yes. Uh, we will decide amongst the four of us, Chinch, maybe not, the three of us, um, what is the truth and you can just listen to us, we'll make the decision and then that essentially informs the entire debate Makes in the whole easier. world. There's already a dubious goals panel. We could be the dubious decisions panel. We will sit the on the DDP. A <laughs> Do we call ourselves the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or is that already taken? <laughs> I think that's already taken. That's a bit 1984, isn't it? Yeah, yeah what a shame. Yeah. Otherwise, well, if, if somebody can come up with a, a really good um, acronym... That it doesn't sound like a branch of Soviet government. <laughs> yes, it doesn't sound like... It's, it's actually something really sinister. Uh, that would be great. So send that to us at Set Piece Menu. And Rory, just moments ago, beautifully, because he knows how these things work, yes. teed up what we're going to be talking about next week. Yes, I did. You basically started to talk about it because you felt so passionate about it and then realised that actually that's no, not so you had to No, I stop. was deliberately teasing. Um, do you, uh, you said you had an Ovid story. I've got a great Ovid story. Okay, we'll do that after we speak to Mr. Andrew. You don't, need to know, you don't need to hear my Ovid story. Oh, well, you don't need to hear it. So it's like the Seven Milosevic story. It's the kind of thing that you tee up, tee up, tee up and we never hear. The Ovid story is, gen- the Ovid story is great for us as, as pals. <laughs> not sure I broadcast it. Okay, well another entertaining and informative discussion I think uh, you'll all agree uh, has taken place but uh, it was made all the poorer I think by not having the contribution of a single digit cat winning former England international uh, so let's put that right now shall we Andy Hinchcliffe is of course in Portugal it is an international break but by the magic of the internet and with all the sweaty enthusiasm of a personal training session with Wow Wow, let's say together hello Andrew bom dia chums tell me what that means firstly that means good day chums Chinch did you know that you answer the phone when we do these in the exact style of a Eurovision presenter giving the results of the Portuguese jury. Is that what I do? Yeah. Oh, actually, I've just been told my, my glamorous assistant, it should be Botard, which is Happy Afternoon. <laughs> happy Afternoon. Happy afternoon. <laughs> which is exa- exactly how you say it in English. <laughs> yeah. Happy Afternoon. I think you pay a little bit extra for that. <laughs> uh, tell me, what is the weather like there in November in Portugal? Um, blue skies, uh, 19 degrees. Uh, a slight breeze from the south. It's delightful. I get the impression, if you could allow me to paint this picture of you, that uh, you are currently sat at a local cafe um, with uh, an espresso on a, a nice little table uh, underneath some sort of awning. And uh, you're a little bit, you know, you've got that kind of mild glow, but yet covering of, of two or three hour old sweat after having a big pumping session with Joao. Is that correct? So you, you basically mean I stink in Portugal. Yeah. Um, no, sadly, no. That's a lovely image that you're portraying there. But I'm actually in the bedroom of my apartamentos uh, overlooking the building size. This huge kind of contemporary mansions being built across the road from where we are. They're, they're eight bedrooms. They're, they're, they're behemoths of buildings. They really are. So as a former footballer, you went for the apartment and not the mansion. Yeah, I've gone for the two-bedroom apartment. There's only myself and Nikki. And apart from you three, well, I call you friends, but we're colleagues more than anything else. I don't have anyone to stay with me, so why would I need an eight-bedroom mansion? Well, the first thing you could do is invite all of us out, and that would at least require five bedrooms. Exactly. As I say, colleagues, not friends. <laughs> well, Andrew, as ever, we're very, very grateful to have you uh, inserting yourself into our conversation um, and doing what you do so well, which is, never mind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is when Andy tells the tale from his playing days. With all adult behaviour and libel where the details removed. Have 
have I mentioned the FA Cup final win for Everton in 1995 before? I'm not sure I have. Have I gone down that road? No, you don't bring it up ever. But I, I was, uh, of course, the, the pivotal player in that victory. But the more I thought, I thought, well, was it really all me? 95% yes, but there was another hero on the day at Wembley. Do you, do you remember who Steve, scored the winning Steve, goal? Paul Steve, Paul Rideout. Paul Rideout, Paul yeah. Rideout, is that right? Have we got that right? Yes, Paul Rideout. So I just wanted to give you, there's a couple of little things I remember about Paul Rideout. Now, the trouble with, he scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final, but of course that, that won us the cup. But what did that also do for us as well? By winning that competition, what happened off the back of it? You went into the Cup Winners' Cup. We went into the Cup Winners' Cup. Now this meant that Paul Rideout would be tormented even more than he already is. Why, I hear you ask. Why? Brilliant. Well, he had a horrendous fear of flying. No, I, I was bad. I didn't like flying. Seriously, it got me. I was very, very nervous. But Paul Rideout was the most nervous flyer I have ever seen. Peter Beagry had to sit next to him on every flight and basically wrap his arms around him. Wouldn't that make it worse? <laughs> um, no, because he used to flail his arms around like a cross between Magnus Pike and John McCreary. He was a danger to everyone around him. He used to have these kind of wild spasms when the plane used to maybe dip or lift, and he used to thrash his arms around in the air. So Beaks used to have to get him in a bear hug to basically just keep him under control until maybe we got into uh, you know, a decent height and he started to kind of flatten out and level off, and he then calmed down. I've never seen anybody behave on a plane like Paul Ryder, but of course winning the FA Cup meant that we'd had to do more travelling so we travelled to, uh, we played in Reykjavik and we had to go out to Holland. So actually he brought more torment on himself by scoring the winning goal in the cup final. I bet he never realised that that was going to happen when he nodded in the winner. It certainly explains Paul Rideout's wild celebrations when <laughs> Feyenoord knocked them out. <laughs> the strange thing was, he finished his career in China. So it's quite a long walk to China, isn't it? A plane is clearly the easiest way of getting there. How he survived? How long would it take to fly to China? I would suggest probably about eight hours. Eight, no, nine more, hours, more. ten hours. Twelve to fourteen. Twelve to fourteen hours. I would definitely. My first guess would be twelve to fourteen hours, and he'd have to fly in between games as well because it's a long walk from like Shanghai to Beijing. Yes, and also he was beagreless, so unless <laughs> they put a straitjacket on him. Maybe he had a, a teammate who was employed to pin him down on these flights to make sure that he didn't karate chop a, um, a an attendant in the face as she was coming past with some some drinks. I do like your um, your lovely 1990s-ish references, by the way, when you're trying to describe Paul Rideout's flailing arms. Well, who were they again? John McCreary and... Magnus Pike. Magnus Pike. So anybody under Pike? the age of 25. I know who John McCreary... Who's Magnus Pike? Magnus Pike was kind of this professory guy that was on telly. And he was... Again, you just have to see him. He used to fling his arms around for no apparent reason. And he was in the 70s and 80s. But again, Google Magnus Pike and you'll see... And that is basically what Paul Rideout did on a plane. And it was very dangerous. Well, Chinch, I'm very glad that not only have you told us a fun soccer story about Paul Rideout, you've also introduced at least one name to the uh, Set Piece Menu audience. So thank you very much indeed. I haven't finished with Paul Rideout. Oh, really? No, there's an extra thing. Paul Rideout... I don't know what they call... I don't know what the kids call it these days. But back in the day, you know that goal where you don't use the side of your foot? You basically just boing it in with the, with, the, with your toes. Is that still a toe bump? A toe poke, toe, toe poke, Chinch, yeah. yeah. Toe poke. Paul Rideout was absolutely the master of the topo. And goalkeepers couldn't work, because obviously a goalkeeper's working on kind of body position and what you're going to do and how you're going to finish it. And he used to just go boink with, the, with his toes. And they caught them out so many times. And he used to do it in training. He used to practice 
the toe poke as a as a way of finishing because he, it caught keepers out because they couldn't. It was just unexpected, and I've never seen anybody else score goals regularly with that technique. Do you think that uh, because of Paul Rideout's behaviour on a plane that made your own fear, whilst less, um, even less er, uh, because you thought I I'm. I'm obviously not suffering as much as Paul Rideout. Yes, it did make. It was horrible to see someone else's discomfort make you feel better, but that is <laughs> what he did to virtually everybody. Because I hate it. I love flying now. Of course, with coming and going to Portugal, that is just my life. So it clearly is no problem to me now. I hated it, but I certainly didn't. I just kind of gripped onto the seat. I didn't flail my arms about, but he used to seriously fling him about really dangerously. So good old Beeks for getting him in a bit of a bear hug and keeping him quiet. Because apart from that, he'd have been chucked off the plane. You can't put somebody on a plane that's like a windmill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andy, uh, you're very kind to spend some time of your very important holiday where you're jealously looking out of your window onto mansions being built with us. So we're very grateful. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers, guys. In Portuguese, please. Cheer off, guys. (laughs) Off. He's really picked up the lingo, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's done brilliantly. There's something about Chinch where I feel like he's he's one of those kind of expatty type guys who who really makes an effort. He really wants to kind of infiltrate and assimilate with the local environment. Do you, do you feel like he's one of those? those no. People? No. <laughs> okay. He's got the tattoos, so you know he was already a big chunk of the way there. <laughs> well, our thanks to Andrew. Very, very grateful for his contribution as ever. You know you get those stories occasionally about how somebody's tried to get on a plane. It's usually in, a, in America with an emotional support animal. Yes. And there was that one, that the famous one, someone would take a peacock yes. on the plane because it would help calm them. Is that what Peter Beagree is? He is an emotional support Could for be, the actually, footballer. Yeah. You know, don't fl- don't fly without your beagree. You yes, know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time that uh, Chinch and I did a um, a European trip um, away from home, um, he was he was still very scared, and he would hold on to the seat. And it was one of those ones where it was a very small plane, and him holding onto the seat because of his sizable bulk, mm. it meant it meant everybody else had to be quite a lot smaller. But he was not stopping, and I I actually soothed him with words of comfort. Is that right? Yeah, you were his beadery. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're not going to die. Don't think about dying. You're not going to die. It's going to be fine. You're not going to die. Definitely not going to die. You were, be, you my were, be my beadery. Be my beadery. His emotional support ferret. Yeah, nice. <laughs> there we go. Nice. I've well, tried to register Hector as an emotional support animal. So I can take him on planes. That's that's the that's the plan. If you Are call you Hector Beagree, you'll be fine. The, well, I mean, the irony is that if anything, I, I'm Hector's emotional support. I was going to say you're one of the least anxious people I know. I think you're going to struggle to convince you know. The but that's because of Hector. Because he but I was a you. mess before he came along. Uh, we leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu we'll be continuing the conversation that we started today in next week's episode in the meantime please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule uh, thank you to Steve to Rory and to Andrew and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed very good yeah Really? That went all right, didn't it? Immediate We cope all right with that change, really, don't we? Yeah, I've not, I've not thought about Paul Ryan out for days. Would really? You? Yeah. They, a couple of weeks ago, BT Sport re-ran a 30-minute highlights chunk of the 1995 oh, I thought you were going to say Paul Rideout. No, just, just <laughs> Paul Rideout <laughs> toe pokes. <laughs> well, and because the Manchester Derby also a couple of week, weekends ago, they uh, obviously showed a lot of Chinch's 5-1 goal as well. Well, when I, I, I was recently sent a free copy of Tim Rich's Talk Beneath a Landslide about Man City in the 1990s, and I opened it, leafing through it, and the very first page that it opened up on was a picture of Chinch in all his glory.
Doing the five. Doing the five, yeah. Because there's two parts of his celebration in the five one. Those of you um, who have met him probably have heard this several times. It's not only the five, but it's also the fist yeah. to the air with his hand on his bicep, which is very aggressive. Which is something not, we've not seen. Becoming. Which is something we've seen from the camera one position on the halfway line on numerous occasions as people send us the clip of Chinch scoring that goal. But that photo was from behind the goal. So, yep. so in, in, in Tim Rich's book, it's, for, it's so from a, a new, fresh angle that's exactly. not necessarily Ooh. been shared in the past. It's like the Zapruder tape. Never before seen picture well, of Chinch's seen, right seen the buttock. Time. No, it's, 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 it's him doing his... It's full frontal. Full frontal. Full frontal. He just looks so happy. Yeah, well, it was rare. Yeah. Nice, though. Um, but it's enough about Chinch. Let's, uh, let's talk more about it. 